0: We are continuing our time of study in the book of Acts, and this morning we come to Acts chapter eight verses 1 through 25. We have printed that for you in the bulletin, so you can follow along as I read it. This is a sermon that I like to t- I've titled "New Frontier: The New Frontier." You'll see why, and you'll understand why in just a moment. Chapter 8, verse 1, let me begin reading. And Saul approved of his execution, that is, Stephen, you, you, it's alluded to in chapter 7. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed Or lame were healed so there was much joy in that city but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying this man is the power of God that is called great and they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had yet not fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. On October of 1914, a sea captain named Ernest Shackleton and a crew of 27 men set off on a mission to Antarctica on the ship Endurance. Antarctica, that's a hard word to say, Antarctica at the time was a new frontier for the world and he and his ship were set to explore this strange landscape. But shortly into their voyage, the endurance ran into some serious ice problems. For over a year, the ship struggled to get out of the ice. But eventually, after 13 months in the ice, the ship was finally consumed by the ice and sunk. The men abandoned the ship and had to figure a way to, be, to survive and then be rescued. This rescue took 10 months. But Shackleton and his crew endured that long 10 months on ice, enduring blizzards and wind, hurricane force winds in the cold, and many of them survived. This story is famously told in Alfred Lansing's book titled Endurance. And in 1916, in August of 1916, This book captures how they were finally rescued and returned home. They were unsure of their survival, but Shackleton and his men ultimately did. Now, the Harvard Business School historian Nancy Cohn reflects on this story and gives us seven important lessons that can be learned from such a story like this. She reflects, she says, this teaches us that All our businesses and all our missions that we have, especially in these new frontiers, must be mission focused. That we need to improvise when needed. That we must possess emotional and social intelligence to endure hardship. That we must be persistent and resilient if we're gonna accomplish the mission. That we need to be able to manage vital details. That we need to freely share information with each other and that we need to learn from mistakes. This this great story of resiliency and of adventure into this new frontier brought these great lessons that we can still learn today that are still being studied in places like Harvard. It's an incredible story. And it is a perfect picture of of the fact that we can learn beautiful lessons from voyages to the new frontiers. But the question for us is that will we learn those lessons? It is so easy for all of us to get focused on the present or the future of our lives not realizing that the past often repeats itself. One of my history professors was constant in his saying, there is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. But we forget that. We ignore the past, jumping into the present, and thinking that we can just endure the future. But the past offers to us great wisdom, and it offers us maturity that is necessary for vitality in the present and in the future. And will we learn the lessons that the past has for us to offer, especially lessons into the new frontier? I hope today that we change that. You see, Acts 8 is a story of the church going into the new frontier Since Jesus' ascension in Acts 1, the church was located in one particular geographical region, Jerusalem. But in Acts 8, that all changes. The church goes to this new frontier called Samaria, a place that it it had only been but for a short period of time. And the lessons that we learn can be vitally important to us today. And simply put, I'm going to teach us three lessons that I think we can learn from this story of the gospel going into the new frontier. It is my hope that learning these lessons that we might forge into the future with great wisdom and maturity. Let's learn these lessons. The first lesson we learned from Acts chapter eight is this lesson, embrace setbacks. Embrace setbacks. We might think that the disciples were compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to this land called Samaria, Jesus told them, after all, in Acts 1-8, that you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here they are in Samaria, just as Jesus had promised. And what is it that propelled them? Was it this profound vision of God coming down, seeing the the risen Lord resurrected? Was Was it them saying, man, the gospel's so good, we need to take it to our neighbors? Was it that? it wasn't what is it that compelled them to go to samaria recall verse 1 and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of judea and samaria you see it wasn't the desire to share the gospel with samaritans and the other other jews that led them to samaria it was a setback it was persecution now, thankfully, these disciples of the apostles were faithful to bring the message of Jesus to those regions when they fled the persecution. And we read in verse four that those who had scattered about preached the word. But here's what I want you to see. What appears to be a disastrous setback for the church, persecution, people being thrown into prison and killed, actually turns out to be the very driving force for the church's growth and vitality, that God used what was difficult and harsh for good. Good. I can't help but think of the famous phrase of Tertullian, the second-century Christian, who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was a setback that led to the church's growth. Setbacks continue to this day in the church. In October of 1949, the Chinese Communist Party became the only ruling party in the country of China. And one of the things that they did is that they immediately kicked out all foreign missionaries of the country of China. I'd imagine that for the first part of 1949, 1950s, and perhaps even the first decade of this law, it felt like a disaster for these Chinese Christians who had relied on these missionaries for so long to teach them the Bible, to help them understand how to do church. But it turns out that it was the very best thing that could have happened for the church in China. Because of this harsh setback, the indigenous Chinese Christians began to take ownership of the church themselves. And having these local Christians who understood what it meant to be be Chinese became more effective in their evangelism. And they became more effective in creating an authentic worship expression for the Chinese. And the result of the church was that it exploded over the next few decades. Statistically speaking, the Chinese church grew 30 to 40 times larger in a 40-year span. Bringing this closer to home, my wife and I, when we attended seminary, many of our classmates were Chinese nationalists. And it all came because of a setback. A communist party saying, we're going to stuff this church. Oh, really? Really? (laughs) Nope. That's not what happened. So as a church, what we learn, what we learn in this story, what we see in history is that setbacks can often be the very thing that God uses to accomplish his purposes. That setbacks are, can be a good thing, and therefore we must embrace them. So many of us have this mindset that when things aren't going our way, maybe we don't get the job we want, maybe maybe things just aren't Just going our way and life just feels against us that God perhaps is against us. God is standing against us. We think God is judging us for these harsh realities that we're living in. But have we ever for once thought that maybe the setback God is trying to use for our own good? Because God clearly uses setbacks for good. He does it here. Friends, embrace setbacks. Setbacks. This doesn't mean that you don't mourn a setback. This doesn't mean that you don't run from persecution like these Jewish Christians did. They certainly did. But they embraced it. And they used it as a catalyst for good. That is the same thing we should do today too. No matter the setbacks we face, a small church with barely any room for children, let's not use that as a setback. Let's press on. Embrace. Embrace. The setbacks. This story teaches us this valuable lesson. And I pray that we learn this lesson that we might forge into the future with wisdom and maturity. Embrace setbacks. That is the first lesson this story teaches us. But there's a second lesson. And the second lesson we can learn from Acts 8 is this Rejoice in grace. Rejoice in grace. I want to take you back to the first century to kind of give you a cultural kind of understanding of what was going on. During this time, Jews and Samaritans, the people that Philip was going to, were at odds with one another about almost everything. Samaritans, in the eyes of a person like Philip, were viewed, by and large, as a mongrel race. This is because in 700 BC, 700 years before this, the Assyrian Empire comes into this region ransacking this part of the world of all its traditions and heritage, and they just took over. And they sent their own people and their own language and religion into that land so that the Jews who stayed back into this land ended up marrying Assyrians and adapting some of the customs of of this people. And this is the people known as the Samaritans. They built their own temples, and they even grew to despise the Old Testament from which the Jewish religion is based off of. If you recall in the Gospel of John, when Jesus interacts with a Samaritan woman, the writer makes a brief aside that says Jews didn't interact with Samaritans. They despised them. But in Acts 8, we see Philip, a Jew, walking into a Samaritan city and proclaiming the gospel, performing signs and wonderful deeds for these people. If you were a Samaritan in that day, you would go, what is that person doing here? He doesn't belong. And it would beg the question, why is he here? Why is Philip in Samaria? There's one simple answer. The grace of God. Philip, albeit a Jew, had a new understanding of how God interacted with his people. It wasn't based on racial purity, the proper placement of the temple, or even a personal adherence to the revealed law of God. Philip understood that one simply stands before God by the grace of God through the person of Jesus. It was Jesus' life that kept the law. It was Jesus' death that was the payment for our law-breaking. So Jesus' life and Jesus' death, when trusted before God, is now the ways in which we stand before God. So no matter if you're a Samaritan or a Jew, Greek or Roman, rich or poor, religious or irreligious... The understanding is that if you want to stand before God, you must stand before God through Jesus. And Philip understood that. And he understood that it was by grace, not anything that he did, not his heritage, not his obedience or lack thereof. It was simply by grace. Philip understood that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, there is no hierarchy. So he goes to a despised people as a despised person himself, and he offers them the very grace that he himself has received. And what's the response of the Samaritans? What's the response of them hearing of the grace? Look at verse 8. What is it? It's joy. It's joy. One of my mentors from afar, and I have a personal relationship with him, but it he, he wasn't like a day-to-day mentoring, but he taught me a lot. And one of the things that he told me, he says, do you want to know where Jesus is? If you want to know where Jesus, listen for the laughter. Listen for the laughter. He told us that because of all the people in the world, <laughs> Christians should be the most joyful Playful, happy people. They should laugh and play and dance and sing and rejoice because the salvation we have is absolutely ridiculous. You're telling me that I can stand before the God of the universe, the one who's created all things, the one who's holy and righteous, and just as a sinner, I can stand before him boldly leaning into him that I can call him Lord and Father. You're telling me that I can do that Because of grace, yes. Well, that's just ridiculous. Dare I say, comedic. Indeed, it is comedic. It's ridiculous, but it's true. Because of that, (laughs) we don't have to take life so seriously. We can laugh. We can know that we're standing before God. This is truly an amazing aspect of Christianity. And the only proper response for us is to rejoice. Rejoice in grace. The Samaritans did it. So should we. You know, when we talk about what does it mean to love God, it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we get the grace, we can't help but to do it. And no offense, we're Presbyterians. We barely get our hands above our belts, but sometimes we just got to let it go. I mean, we just got to let it go sometimes, not worrying about what other people say. I'm not saying this is, like, normative, but, I mean, come on. Rachel, you know. Now I'm preaching, right, Rachel? (laughs) Rejoice in grace, my friends. It is a beautiful gift. It's the reason Philip marched into a, a place where he probably once despised. It's grace. What a beautiful lesson we learned from this story. It's a beautiful lesson that we can cherish, rejoice in grace. See, this story teaches us important lessons. It teaches us to embrace setbacks. It teaches us to rejoice in grace. But it also finally teaches us to cherish the church, to cherish the church. Once the Samaritan people received from Philip the word of God, the church in Jerusalem got word of it and sent the apostles Peter and John to visit. So they come to this this new area, a place that is often despised by them. And they provide two vitally important realities for this newly formed church in Samaria. Two. Power and protection. Power, first. First. The first thing we see is the apostles granting this church in Samaria power when they lay hands on the believing Samaritans and they receive the Holy Spirit. In this particular act, the apostles grant the Samaritans access to the same power that Philip had when he came into the Samaritan city. Now, if you recall, the power that he had was the power to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And this power was abundantly clear to the Samaritans. This is why they wanted to give their ear to Philip, a Jew, a person that they probably despised as well. But he had power. And there was one person who saw this power clearly, and we can see it. Verse 18, a man named Simon. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered the apostles' money. And what does he say in verse 19? Give me this Power also. So here's what I want you to see. The apostles come, they lay hands on the Samaritans, and they have great power. We see that. And, the, and, and these apostles are representatives of a bigger church. They come from Jerusalem. The power comes from the church. And this power is to continue preaching the gospel, the power to push back hell, the power to see the dead come to life. And the church is the one that grants this power because the church brings the power. But it not only brings power, first. Secondly, it brings protection. Now, Peter heard Simon's offer that he would pay money for this power, but he's not too happy about it. Peter is actually quite strong. Verse 20, he says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. He says, repent. And he says, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Look what Peter's doing. He is protecting this newly formed church from a man who would have used the church for personal gain. We cannot miss this fact. Simon was one of the most influential characters in all of Samaria. We are told in this text that all the Samaritans paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. One could easily think that Simon would be perhaps the best person, the best person to have this power. He would have had a great influence He would have been able to keep people spellbound by his words, and the church would have flourished, and it would have been great. What a man! But Peter, as a constituent, as a church at large, saw right through it, and he immediately called Simon to repent. Peter was not deterred by this man's fame or his influence or his money. He stood his ground, and he called out Simon for his ways and he protected the church as a result. What a gift this protection is to the church. Friends, I understand that the church has had its moments of shame, and you might have experienced the church doing that to you. I understand that, I do. But I boldly proclaim to you that the church provides the same power and protection in Acts today. The same power and the same protection that the church was in Acts 8 is still in place in the church today. And for that reason we must cherish the church. The church continues to bear witness to the miracle of God's salvation. Any Christian you know is a walking miracle. I want you to know that. They are people who were at one time dead in their sins, doing only what they wanted to do. But when God moved towards them and worked in their lives, he made them spiritually alive, giving them the ability to do what God wants them to do. If you're unfamiliar with this miracle yourself, just look around this room. You are bound to bump into someone who has experienced the miracle of this new birth. I mean, if you're doubting this miracle, I want you to go and talk to someone here and say, tell me about how you were once dead and now alive. And I guarantee you, you would hear a story, a story that is miraculous. The power of the church still pervades today. And the church proclaims that same miraculous story to you today. There is great power in the church. Let us not walk from it. Let us cherish the church. But the church continues to provide protection as well. And this is not necessarily something that's always fun to talk about. You know, Church government is just like, ah, I don't want to, that's boring. It's inauthentic, but it's, it's, it's so important. I mean, last summer, there's this podcast that kind of went viral in the United States, and it was called The Rise and Fall of Marsh Hill. It truly was one of the most listened to podcasts in all of America, maybe even all of the world. I don't know that for a fact, but I do know it was in America. But the people who listened were fascinated by this story of a church of 15,000 in a short period of time closing its doors. From 15,000 to nearly nothing. You know, we could spend a lot of different times talking about the different stories that were told on the podcast, but there's one particular story that I continually go back to time and time again. The podcast interviewed this pastor who was at a neighboring church in this community where this large church was. And the pastor said this, people don't ask these typical questions. When people come into my church, they ask these typical questions. They ask about community groups, Bible studies, where they can get plugged in, what the children's programs are like, maybe even some of where the doctrines are. But when these people started coming into the doors that had left this mega church, this monstrous church, they were asking me questions like this. Can you share me your church's bylaws? Can you give me an understanding of how money is spent here? And the pastor said, At this, I realized something had gone wrong at this church. Something really wrong had gone down. The answer, and what this whole podcast eventually describes, is that at at the head of this church was a wolf in sheep clothing, Someone just like Simon who had gotten into power, who had spellbound people and had abused people and did serious damage. When we hear stories like this, this is when form of government and what it is that guides and protects the church becomes very serious. We don't need to spend a lot of time talking about it, but we need to talk about it. Church government is vitally important because it protects the church from wolves and sheep's clothing. And this is one of the reasons why I really do love the Presbyterian form of government. I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail. It's not a perfect form of government, but it provides checks and balances like we see in Acts 8. Checks and balances that when we see people that are going off in a wrong place, they can say, whoa, buddy. You're going off. And there's authority over individuals and that can stuff it out. I want to encourage you, if you've never even thought about this, you, you might not even be interested in it. You should be if you're, you should care about the church. But if you want to know all about Presbyterian government, there's a thing called the book of church order. Again, not the best, I mean, if you want to fall asleep at night, go ahead, like great book, <laughs> But it's a helpful document. And it's a document that helps you understand how the church protects itself from people like Simon and wolves in sheep's clothing. The church does this. It protects the flock from, from wolves in sheep's clothing and from doctrine erring. Cherish it. This is the way the church thrives and is vital. Cherish the church. Love it. Study its power. Study its practices. Like the church in Samaria, if we cherish the church, I promise you, this church will be blessed. We've come to the end. We've recounted the story in Acts 8 and reflected over three important lessons that it has for us to embrace setbacks, to rejoice in grace, and to cherish the church. The question that I have for all of us in closing is this Will we? Will we heed the lessons of Acts 8 and move into the future with wisdom and maturity? Will we? Oh, friends, let us take these lessons to heart and apply them into our context. Let me pray. Our gracious Lord, we give thanks to you for this text which has helped us and has guided us. It has guided us to your cross where we find that indeed the ground of the cross is level, that no one can come with anything to merit your favor. No, there's nothing. We come empty-handed, but we leave full of grace. What a gift this is to us. What a gift your church is to us. Indeed, it is the church that Is the conduit of your power. It is the church that offers protection. Oh, Lord, we are just reminded of how how you work. When we face setbacks, I pray, oh, Lord, that we would endure it. We would look to you and ask, how are you working? Because we know you're working for good. May we do this and move forward into the future with maturity and wisdom. Amen.